Hi, I'm Sharon Hunter, and this is Moonstone Connections, a podcast that puts the spotlight on important leaders in the world of arts and entertainment. Through in-depth conversations with people in the arts, we will get a chance to learn about them and how they are making a difference. Since this is my first installment of Moonstone Connections, let me tell you a little bit about myself. I am an actress, a singer, a producer, a director, an artistic director, and a teacher. I did not go into theater initially, even though I love theater. I started out as a broadcast journalist, and I worked for 10 years in radio. I started out as the host of the nighttime request and dedication show Pillow Talk on KZK, then moved on as an on-air host at Y98 and various radio stations in St. Louis. Then I moved to Memphis, Tennessee, and I was the news director and morning anchor for Kix 104, and then moved over to WREC as a co-host and producer of Memphis Today. But of course, Theater was my first love. And when I decided to come back to St. Louis, that was the goal. It was to be back in theater. And I worked really hard. And I was lucky enough to become a member of Actors' Equity and SAG-AFTRA and was in a a lot of shows here in town in St. Louis. Eventually, I moved on to New York City, where I worked for 10 years in various jobs in theater, also as a cabaret artist. And eventually I decided to come back to St. Louis because I felt like it was time for me to start my own company. And I thought I can take all of the things that I know, all of my experiences and all of my skills and bring them back here. And it seemed like a good time because I had realized that a lot of women were especially coming into power here in St. Louis as artistic directors and producers and directors. And I thought this is a good place for me because again, it's my hometown And it's also a place where I can bring what I've learned to this city, which I love. And so I started my own company, Moonstone Theater Company. And I am very proud of that. Unfortunately, because of the pandemic, we've had to put some things on hold. So um, I'm, I'm in that holding pattern. But in the meantime, I decided to start a podcast because my life is all about making connections the people I work with, people I know, and people I love. And that's what this podcast is all about. And now it's about making connections, those connections, with all of you. So sit back and enjoy this first installment of Moonstone Connections. And let me tell you why I chose Moonstone as the name of my theater company and also this podcast. I love the moon. I always have. And I believe that it brings power and it brings change. And it just has always empowered me and made me feel really good. And I knew I wanted to have that word somewhere in the name of the theater company. And my acting coach, who I really was close to in New York City, uh, was a big inspiration to me. And I really wanted to honor him with his name somewhere in that, because he had always said to me, Sharon, I really feel like if one of my students started a theater company or was was some way uh, changing the lives of other people, it would be you. And I was so honored by that, that I thought I want to give that back to him. His name was Peter Flint and Peter passed away in 2013 of cancer. And I thought, well, how can I incorporate his name in this name? And I thought, well, Flint is a stone. And I thought, what if I call it Moonstone? And so when I did some research and I started looking up what a Moonstone meant, This is what I found. The spiritual meaning of Moonstone derives from the healing crystal connection. As these are representative for the connection with the superior power, Moonstone channels an inspiration to our own intuition. Moonstone helps the wearer embark on a journey of introspection and self-awareness. It's a beautiful stone and it comes in a variety of colors and it actually looks in some ways like the tide of the water. And when I did further research, it said that a Moonstone is used as a talisman to bring out creativity and emotional expression of actors and artists. And I thought, well, there you go. So here we are. This is our Moonstone Connection. The following interview was recorded prior to the Jewish Community Center's decision to suspend operation of St. Louis's new Jewish theater due to the pandemic. They plan to resume operations 
in the future. And thank you so much for joining us on this first podcast. And I'm very excited to say that my very first guest on this inaugural podcast is a very important person in St. Louis theater. Uh, Edward Caulfield, who likes to go by Eddie Caulfield now, uh, was the uh, production manager for the Repertory Theater of St. Louis for 28 years. He is a director. He is a producer. He is now the artistic director and producer of New Jewish Theater, and he has been for two years. He's been a professor, an adjunct professor at Webster University for 23 years. And so there's a lot of things that he does and he does in theater. So thank you so much for being with us. Well, it's delightful to be here. Thank you for asking me to be part of your inaugural podcast. Well, I couldn't think of a better person to uh, sit down and just really have a nice uh, conversation with. I was always picked last in sports, so it's nice to know that I'm being picked first in podcasts. Well, you're first, you're first, and you're the only right now. So uh, I, I think... Yes, that makes me first and last. Well, pretty much, depending on how this podcast goes. So good. I'm so glad you're with us. There's no pressure. Uh, no. Uh, did I miss anything? Because obviously you have had an illustrious career in theater. And oh, I should have mentioned also that you began your career as a stage manager. I did. I was a stage manager for a long, long time. And in fact, uh, when I first came to St. Louis, I, I actually moved here from Vero Beach, Florida, where I was working at a theater called the Riverside Theater as a, their production stage manager. And I got hired to be the production stage manager at Theater Project Company. So Fontaine Sire, who founded that company, who was married to Bobby, the late Bobby Miller. In fact, they've both passed on him. I was the last person Fontaine hired and she announced her resignation. She went off to go work at the Orange Shakespeare Festival. So I came here in August of 1990, I think, that's what it was, to be the production stage manager there. And that's what, kind of what I thought I was going to do. And then I did a couple of shows with him and I got an offer to go out on the road with a big tour. So I went out on the with a big tour. And then when I was on the road, I got a call from Steve Wolf at the rep, who I'd worked with in Summerstock. And he was like, we're looking for a production manager. Are, are you interested? And I was like, sure. Because I thought, I literally thought I was going to be in St. Louis two years. Really? And now I've been here 31 years, actually, this month. Let's go back. Let's talk about your childhood. Let's talk about where you're from. And I'm curious, um, was your family theatrical? And is that how you got your start? I was born in Roswell, New Mexico. That's pretty much what I thought. No, I think kidding. it kind of explained it. When you, once you know that, you're like, I make so much more sense. Oh, I have a question for you later that'll fit this perfectly. Uh, so I was born in Roswell, New Mexico. And when I was small, I think four or five, we moved to a place called Midland, Texas, mm -hmm. which is where uh, I, basically where I grew up. I was there until I went to college. My father was an oil and gas attorney. Uh, and of course, there was a lot of oil and gas business in West Texas, so that made uh, sense for a place for us to be. Yes, big oil, big oil town. The family was only theatrical in the, its use of gestures and um, declarations around the dining table. That said, I had parents that thought it was incredibly important uh, to take their children to theater and museums and symphonies and operas from a very young age. And... Um, uh, it was very important, but that was very important to my parents. And uh, we we were lucky enough, Midland, Midland had, when I was growing up, was like the third highest per capita income because of the oil business. And because of that, there was, and it's still there, there was a very substantial community theater called Theater Midland. Mm -hmm. And we went to that all the time. I mean, I remember being probably six, and I know that the very first show I ever saw was a production of Helen Dolly. Uh, and I was mesmerized by it. And ironically, I now know as an adult, that actually starred Betty Buckley's mother, Rita Buckley. Really? Uh -huh, who knew? Oh, that's amazing. So we, you know, that, that resource was there. And in fact, my older siblings all were very active in, in their youth theater, something called the Pickwick Players. Uh, I was not, nor was my twin brother Phil. We just, for whatever reason, we were very involved in high school theater, but we didn't do much with the community theater and right. uh but we were i mean we were taken to theater all the time both in midland and 
Dallas and Houston. How many siblings do you have? I have, uh, there were five children. Uh, originally, my twin brother, Philip, died about 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are four of us are still left. And my, both of my, all of my parents, my mother, father, and stepmother are, are all gone at this point. But your other siblings, they weren't in theater. No, that like they were active as kids. Like they did, like, you know, that stuff. But nobody chose to follow that path professionally. I do know the first time I was ever on stage, and I am not an actor, I do not consider myself an actor. I actually don't have any interest in being an actor, but when uh, Philip and I were six or seven, uh, we were cast in a production of Winnie the Pooh that the children's theater there was doing because they wanted twin rabbits. Oh, how cute. And so that was, I mean, I suppose that's when the bug bit, I guess. Well, that's a perfect, yeah, for both of you since you were twins starred um, an actress uh, named Kristen Griffith, who went on to have a big career in New York as a sort of, quote, legit stage actress. She's still around. And I thought, well, that's sort of amazing because that was that was 50-something years ago. So, okay, so you were in Texas and then you went, you got into being stage manager because that's the, that's the path you took where your twin got into performing. Well, it was, Philip and I were both very active in the theater department. Mm-hmm. at Midland High School, home of the Fighting Bulldogs. And um, I never had any interest about being on stage, but I would run the lights and do kind of all backstage stuff. And that's where I started stage band. And I loved it. Hmm. Absolutely loved it. Do you feel like you could have done something else? Like, was there ever a time when you thought, if I wouldn't be in theater, I would want to do something else or, you know, have a different kind of career? Yes. Uh, well, for the longest time as a young child and maybe even into being a teenager, what I really thought I wanted to do was be a marine biologist. Really? Um, we spent all of our vacation time on the Texas Gulf, Gulf Coast in a place called Rockport. And I got very interested in the ocean because of that. Did you study that at all? I, no, not at all. And as it turns out, you know, people are like, well, did you want to study whales or sharks? Or Actually, the thing that interests me is actually seabirds. Really? Puffins and penguins specifically. Is that also marine biology or is that ornithology? I think you can get an ointment for ornithology if you have that. (laughs) That's not correct. That is not. That's a good question. I suppose it's ornithology with a specialty in seabirds. Possibly. See, I, well, but I think that's fascinating, though, if you were interested in seabirds. I think that's interesting that because I was going to say it, you had like some kind of experience with a whale. Was there a problem? And you just thought, I've got to be a marine biologist. I was repeatedly stung by jellyfish as a child. Seriously? Oh, yeah. Because the, the Texas coast is teeming with them and particularly man of war. And, you know, once you've been stung a couple of times, you're like, well, that isn't that pleasant. No, it isn't. No, no. And I can't say I have been. I don't want to be. And, you know. And actually, when I first was heading off to college at the University of Texas at Mm -hmm. Austin, and literally like the week before I'm going, my father was like, well, what are you going to study? And I had decided to get a degree in advertising. Really? Yeah. And I said, well, advertising. And he said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I want to be a theater producer ultimately and he said well don't you think you should study theater and so i was like oh that's really good advice so i transferred to the theater department oh well so what made you was it what when you got to college that you just suddenly said you know this is it's really going to be theater for me is that what happened it was always in my mind i was going to be in, in the theater and i think i thought that wasn't stable so i should do advertising okay yeah well I mean, that was kind of my route because I really wanted to go into theater. But then I kind of got, you know, the advice, like you're saying, where people were like, well, theater's not stable. You need to get a real job. You need to get a job that'll pay you money. So then I went, ended up going into communications and journalism because I thought, well, I can, you know, make money in that. And and I did for a while. But that, I, you know, it, it's it's interesting how things take you down different routes. And sometimes you you head back to what you love. I have to say that I feel incredibly lucky that uh, I got out of school and basically until the furlough for the pandemic, I've never not had work ever. That is, that is very lucky. Now, when is I, lucky. of course, I worked for the rep for 28 years. Right. So that was incredibly steady. But even when I was freelancing, I was able to keep 
myself booked with work about 18 months out. Is that the norm, though, in theater? Because, I mean, here's here's my next question. You've been a teacher for over 20 years at Webster University, which is attached to the repertory theater. And obviously, the business of theater has changed. But theater is so unpredictable. And this is prior to the pandemic. Holding on to jobs, especially as an actor, is is you just don't know, right? Right. Yeah. I realize I'm I'm uh, as a freelancer, I was the exception rather than the rule. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, when I very first got, I didn't, I forgot this till this came up. But when I first got to the rep, I was not on a year-round contract. I was on a seasonal contract. I think my first three years. Really. Okay. And so then I was having to still hustle for summer stock work. And I think I went back to them and said, look, I love being here, but I, you got to make this year round because mm-hmm. it's kind of a hassle of sort of finding work from April to the middle of July. And then you'd be back in the middle of July. Right. So they did. And then I, I did that. And, you know, when I first came to St. Louis, I was not wild about St. Louis. Really? Why? I found it um, politically way too conservative. Um, uh, I just wasn't sure about the city. And it was years later, I think I'd been here 14 years or so when uh, my brother died and we had the funeral. Mm-hmm. And Philip, who I loved to death, but he was very reclusive. He didn't, you know, I have a lot of friends. I'm a very social person. Philip was not like that. And we have his funeral at my synagogue and there's like 400 and something, almost 500 people at that funeral. But Philip didn't know. They were there for me. And I was like, oh, maybe this is where I'm supposed to live. Oh, that's really a neat story. It was a huge revelation. Well, I was just going to ask you if what, what exactly kept you in St. Louis and when did that happen? And I, for, the, for some reason, I thought to myself, was it the people? It is. Oh, it's absolutely the people. And yeah. the, I, the city has grown on me. Mm-hmm. Uh, the city has changed a lot since I got here. Um, uh, it's absolutely the people. But and you... And we're a great restaurant. But you also, and I mean, this is on a personal level, and I, if you want to talk about it, that's that would be great. You made a change with your religion, so that you you made a you made a detour into Judaism from Episcopalian, as I remember correctly. And why and and, and why why did you do that? Well, that was that's a that's an interesting story. Uh, I had been born and raised and confirmed and. All the things, all the boxes you can check as an Episcopalian my entire life. And uh, about the age of 36 or 37, and I'm fuzzy as to exactly what it was, I was asked to direct a production of March of the Falsettos for the New Jewish Theater, which you, Sharon Hunter, were in. What? I don't remember. What? No, I do. The second half of that musical deals with a bar mitzvah. And I'd never been, I'd been to a Jewish wedding and to a Jewish funeral. I'd never been to a bar mitzvah. So arrangements were made for me to go to a bar mitzvah at Central Reform Congregation. Mm-hmm. And I will tell you, I had a profoundly spiritual experience. Like I'd never had an experience like that in, in a, a sanctuary setting. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I was like, well, that was pretty amazing. I think I'll go back. So I went back the next Saturday and I kept, I just kept, I never stopped going back. You know, they say that um, uh, the Jews are uh, God's chosen people and the Episcopalians are God's frozen people. Did they say that? That's what they said. That's lovely. That's and, lovely. Definitely, and I grew up in a, in a church that was, it was not a high Episcopal church, but it was pretty, it was pretty staid. Now I do, I will say, I still love a good old, uh, the pomp and circumstance of an Episcopal service, I still think is kind of amazing. But you have to probably think too, though, that there was something about you that was ready to receive that and be ready to, to make that kind of change. And I can't remember how long I had been going there. It had been more than a year, certainly, when I started thinking about converting. Mm-hmm. And in the uh, Jewish faith, you have to ask the rabbi three times, and, they're, and, they're, and they will deny you. That's part of the thing, because they want to make sure that your request is sincere. Right. And I had the conversation with my rabbi, so I really think uh, I want to convert. And uh, Susan Talvey's said, you know, Edward, she said, I'm supposed to deny you. And I said, yeah, I know. And she said, but I feel like we're wasting our time. So yes, I think you should convert. And then I started the course of converting, which took about two years. Really? And I converted on my 40th birthday. Oh, 
that's really nice. That's and it's apropos. So I've been Jewish for seventeen years. Is it everything you imagine? Yes, although like with any religious affiliation, you know, it has its ups and its downs. Sure. And, uh, you know, churches are as political as theater is, and so I think I lived in a I lived sort of in a, a bubble about the synagogue for a while, and, and then I was actually on the board, and you see how a synagogue operates, and it's it's as rough and tumble as anything else. But I but it has not wavered my belief that converting to Judaism is the right thing to do. It, it just felt like a different connection that I'd ever had. And it's still there, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I remember when when we were doing falsettos and I, what I thought was really nice is that you encouraged all of the cast to come to um, to come to a we went to a bat mitzvah. And I've also felt like it was a, a wonderful experience, very moving. It it really transformed me, not quite the way it transformed you, which is your own special uh, experience and, and, and a great one. But it did, it did really, it, it opened a whole world to me and it opened the world to me as an actor because then I could take that experience and bring it to the show, which I thought was very valuable. And I wish all directors would allow actors to sometimes immerse themselves really in the reality of what they're playing. Because I know that the feelings that I felt when I was on stage and watching the young boy have his bar mitzvah in the show brought up so much emotion and so much of a connection that I knew that I knew that I had gotten from what I was witnessing when you said, go to this and do this. So thank you for that. I love that. I love that moment in the show when the, the kid is kind of trans, Jason is kind of transcending, transcending into being a man. That's what mm-hmm. happened in the bar mitzvah. At the same time, uh, wizards dying mm-hmm. and i've always found the that sort of moment of, of exchange incredibly powerful mm-hmm. the emotion that i had when i was doing that on stage and i mean i know you know i was i was very <laughs> moved on stage all real i mean i never ever had to say oh i need to bring up tears no 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 they were there and it was and i and i and i still say it was because of that because i had lived through the experience and then i was able to bring that to 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 reality i don't know if you recall you know we did that show very we rehearsed it very quickly we did we did and it's big i mean it's it's, it it's basically big. two musicals and i think if i remember correctly we rehearsed two weeks and then we were in town it was, yeah. it was the fast. I, I was like, this is ridiculous. Yeah, it was it was quick. It was really I mean, quick. They do say that pressure makes diamonds. Frankly, they also make cubic zirconia. Yeah, I mean, we could have used another week. But, you know, hey, I wouldn't say that publicly. What? Uh, I have a question. Um, as far as with your teaching experiences, how do you feel that theater is changing for uh, students that are coming up the uh, you know, up the the ranks now, as opposed to when you began. Just the business of theater. What are you What are you telling them? How is it different? I think the way that it's different is that when I was in school, and probably when you were in school, um, we you you went through and you did your college training, and then you kind of went off to New York or Chicago or Los Angeles, wherever you're going to go, right, and start your career. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, first of all, I think there are way more opportunities. You know, we have any number of kids at the conservatory that, for example, already have their equity cards. That's not unheard of at all. Um, but the other thing that I that I don't recall, and maybe I just don't remember, is I think the kids now uh, are more um, they're more driven to create work for themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, just they'll put together of- a cabaret, or they'll put together a shower, though. And, and actually, in, in the edge of the pandemic, it's been really interesting because you've seen a huge shift that way because we're all sort of, and I hate the word pivot, but we're all pivoting to how we do things. Mm-hmm. And they've really embraced it because, of course, they're, they're much more technology forward than my generation. So they're not waiting for that feeling of, I've got to get somebody to notice me or I've got to get somebody to give me work. They're actually going out and creating the work to, to, to be seen. Is what you're saying. How, what is your teaching philosophy? Do you have one? What my personal philosophy is to, um, I would actually say that I'm probably more of a mentor than a teacher, 
but that I believe in giving uh, my students accurate, frank advice uh, and sort of pushing them to uh, find the answers themselves. How do you motivate them? It's a tough business. It is a tough business. Well, you know, I will say, I'm a, I think it's lucky that I work at a conservatory where those kids are there, you know, they've signed up for, it's like theater boot camp, right? Mm-hmm. So they're, most of them are relatively self-motivated and sometimes they're not. Sometimes you get kids that just want to be handed things and that doesn't happen to anybody. No, no. What have you learned from your students? Oh my gosh. Uh, that's a great question. I would say patience and tenacity, which I think are actually things I had, but I'm reminded of that so frequently from my kids. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I am lucky because I teach both on the production side and I teach one class on the performance side. So I get sort of the best of all worlds. Is that always been the case? Have you, is that always what you've done? Teach? Originally I just taught in the stage management program and Mm -hmm. then 10 years ago, maybe I started teaching uh, in the performance sequence in the sophomore year, the sophomore performance students take a class called Design and Production for Actors. At the same time that the design tech kids are taking an acting class, which they all hate, by the way. So, uh, I mean, I could teach design and production because that's what I've done my whole life. But the fact that I spend a semester with those performance kids is a whole different, you know, they see the world differently than the design tech kids do. That's true. That's true. It's a really, I enjoy both and it's, it's been great. So continuing down the path, I would ask you, you, cause you were doing the production managing thing at the rep, but then you had the impetus to become a director and what compelled you to become a director? So I had done a little bit of directing before I got to St. Louis, not a lot. Most of what I had been hired to, it wasn't even really directing. I've, several times I was hired to reopen or remount productions that I had already, that I had stage managed before. And the director wasn't available. They're bringing the show back, director wasn't available. So they asked me to um, uh, come in and put the show together. So I started learning directing that way, which was interesting. And then a couple of, uh, some opportunities just opened up and I just started directing. And then I found myself at some point running, uh, unintentionally running the Ozark Actors Theater. Oh, right. You were, an art- were you artistic director there? I was. I started there as just a, regular, a director for hire. And the, uh, the very first show I think I directed for them was uh, Everything I Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, it was a very successful production. And then I got a phone call in September and they had fired the artistic director and they wanted to know if I would take the theater, which had never been in my game plan at all. They were in a bind. They were hugely in debt. Mm. And I think they felt like I was the one person they trusted to sort of uh, help them. And and in fact, we got them out of debt my first season as artistic director. How long were you there? I think think on and off seven summers, probably five as the artistic director. Oh, wow. And I've been back once since then to direct. I directed Annie for them twice. And so once when I was artistic director. That was the show that saved the theater, in fact. And then I came back to do it. And it was funny because when I came back to do it, all those little girls that had been orphans were adults, basically. Of course. Life continues. And then suddenly the kids that played your kids on stage are now, you know, on Broadway and you're going, what? Well, my my Annie in that first Annie in Ozark Actors Theater was Taylor Loudermill. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And she was 10 when I cast her. And I, I do remember thinking, oh, this kid is, this kid's going to make wow. it. Wow. Yeah. Funny. Well, Alex Pracken was my son in falsettos. And now, you know, he's. I've had great luck casting kids. I yeah, you really have. You really have. Really have. No, that's and when cool. I did Annie, when I did Annie the second time, at that point, Taylor had been, a, I think, had been, a, been on Broadway and maybe had one Tony nomination. And she was at the Muni doing something. And I called her and I said, well, look, we're doing Annie again. And I wanted her to play Grace and she couldn't make that schedule work. Uh, I said, would you come and be the star to be? And, you know, the star to be has literally 32 bars. That's it. And I said, we can put you in in one rehearsal. It was easy peasy. And she agreed to do it. And she came in 
And so I had this great moment where she and then the new 10 year old Annie were together. And to me, it was like, like such a full circle. I loved it. I was just like sobbing. <laughs> and the people that knew loved it. It was a good, I hate to be cheap. It was a great gag. No, it's, I think that's a great idea. And that's, see, that's nice because the longevity and the, the relationships that you've, you've created for yourself over so many years with so many wonderful people who, even though they have gone on to do like great things, you still can call them and say, Hey, can you come in for this? Can you do this for me? And of course their answer is going to be yes. And that's, that's, that's really, that's cool. That's, and that's the nature of the business because it is a business that is very much about relationships and connections and doing things for each other and, and working together in, in very good ways. And that I've always thought that was what was really the secret about theater in general. I mean, obviously it transforms and it, it touches audiences' lives, but it transforms the lives of the people that are actually doing it. Oh my, oh my God, yes. And you know, we, I'm sure you've experienced this. I've experienced it many times that you, you hire somebody to do a project and you have a connection with them. But very much true of you and I for your perfect example that uh, I knew after we did Hello, Mother, Hello, Father that I would use you again as an actor because first of all, you're hilarious oh, and, you. um, uh, and talented and has a, you have a great voice. Uh, and you were incredibly easy to work with and you're a very hard worker. Oh, well, thanks so much. That's very kind. <laughs> I appreciate that. More than a handful of those people, frankly. I feel lucky. Well, I, I and I, I feel the same as far as working with you. And I always enjoyed working with you as a director. I always knew exactly what you wanted. And I always, you know, it, it became really easy. And, and when you when you have that, it's it's a good thing. And I, I really, you know, I, I hope we can we, we create that magic again. And I'm looking forward to it when we can in the future. Right. You know, I'm not, I would not categorize myself as a conventional director in any way. I was never trained that way. I, I, I it's, I'm kind of self-taught in many ways. And of course I spent a lot of time watching some really amazing directors of the rap, some really amazing directors. What do you think your style is as a director? I would certainly... say, I think I'm a, a, a competent storyteller. Uh, I think I have incredibly strong, uh, casting skills that probably is my biggest strength um uh where i don't like i'm not and i will never be like a joanna acolytus visionary or that woman that did those puppets with lying i just i can't think that way <laughs> but but see that's the thing all directors have strengths and i mean and that's what makes them you know have their certain style Right. I, I have gotten lucky a couple of times where I've sort of made uh, a moment of art, uh, <laughs> but, but sort of. But I didn't know I was doing. This is like, oh, oh, that's kind of cool. Look at that. So let's move on to because you did you directed mm -hmm. regularly with New Jewish Theater, and and then eventually, and you became the artistic director producer of New Jewish Theater. How did that happen? And how did you land at the J in that job? That's a great, that's uh, a funny story. So I knew, so the New Jewish Theater is currently in its 23rd uh, season, which of course has been suspended. Mm -hmm. The very, uh, when they were about three or four years old, um, Kathleen Sitzer was the founding artistic director, felt like, and she was an equity member from way back. And I think she felt like it was really important to use equity actors. And the very first equity actor they ever hired was my brother, Philip, for a play that I no longer remember the name of. I can see it. It's a really cool drama. And so he was on, I think, some sort of special appearance contract. And then I went another year or so, and then they actually started using regularly equity actors. At some point, uh, I ran into Kathleen Sitzer at the coat check at the rep. I was working. And I just happened to say to her, I said, if you're ever looking for a director, I would be very interested. And she called me a few months later and said, I'd love for you to come direct. Uh, do you know this play Crossing Delancey, uh, which I didn't know. And I immediately got in and, and uh, it's comedy, which is mostly what I do. And 
So I started directing in there, and then I directed every final show in their season for 16 or 17 years in a row. About halfway through that period, Kathleen had asked um, myself and Bobby Muller to become artistic associates. Uh, the, the theater was growing and expanding, and she felt like she needed, frankly, more of a sounding board. Mm-hmm. So I, I spent a long time doing that. And then when she retired, I felt like uh, there might be a great opportunity for me uh, to go and run that theater. And so I applied for the job, and they did a national search, and I was certainly no guarantee at all. And, uh, but I got the job, and that was, two, I've been there almost a little over two years at this point. And that, Do you like it? Pardon me? Do you like it? I do like it. I do like it. You know, I got, I'm lucky because uh, my life at the Repertory Theater was strictly kind of the production and business side. Mm-hmm. So I'm very comfortable in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the artistic side, uh, I love. It's kind of not, you know, like the, we think that artistic directors get to lie around all day and to just be lofty and think about these great plays they're going to produce, which is part of it. But, oh my God, you know, there's so much more to it. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. We're a very small operation. You know, I write all the press releases. I write all the grants. Uh, we have some support, some support from the J staff, but we're, you know, it's a small, uh, you know, it's myself and two other employees. So it's, mm-hmm. it's a small team. And it's, I'm amazed what we get done. Now, we hire a lot of other people Right. right. What would you consider your greatest theater accomplishment? You know, they, you're supposed to the politically correct things to say that I, I don't have a favorite, but in fact, I do. Have a favorite. <laughs> uh, I was very proud of Falsettos uh, because I'm fond of the piece and I felt like we got an amazing thing done in a very little amount of time. And then after that, the thing I would say is uh, a play called The Immigrant. The Immigrant? The Immigrant by Mark Harlick. And I think I did that, I think it was nine years ago. It was a long time ago. You directed that at the J? I did. It's a beautiful, beautiful play with four people. And it was a really nice production and seemed to really connect with the audience. And uh, uh, I'm sure I will get a chance to direct that play again at some point. Uh, and I look mm-hmm. forward to it. Although I don't, I'm not wild about repeating stuff. Right. First of all, I, sometimes I'm like, God, I hope I can get the play up because I have no ideas. <laughs> and then I'm thinking, well, if I have to do it again, I had no ideas the first time. That was not true of the other. That was a great experience. Do you find, are those the things you're most proud of? Or would you say you're most proud of something that's completely uh, different from that? And, and like in a personal nature, or do you, do you feel like th- that your career is where your pride is? My career is important to me. Um, I'm not married. I don't have any children. Uh, so if, if, if this is what my legacy is, I'm very proud of my career. I will say within the sort of context of my career, I did not ever intend to be a director that focuses so much on comedy. But the truth is, I've directed one drama and everything else is comedy. And I probably professionally directed about 130. Really? You've only, you've directed all comedies and only one drama? One drama. I had no idea. I, 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 for some reason I thought, cause I, I guess because what it is, is though, is the, is the productions that you have directed and the things that I have seen you do. What I've seen though, that there's, there's a running, I think there's a running theme of humanity so that the stuff that you choose to direct, even though I have seen that a lot, I mean, some of it is farcical, some of it's like broadly comedic, but a lot of the shows that yes, would be considered a comedy. I look at that and I think, but there is a running humanity to it. And then there is an underlying deep feeling to it. So that a lot of the shows that I've seen you direct, you're laughing, but you're crying all in the same show. Right. Yep. That's absolutely true. I think that is true. And those are the sorts of plays I'm really drawn to. Mm -hmm. Um, I can make, a really like wacky, big, hilarious moment on stage. That is easy for me to do. Mm-hmm. It is more, more interesting and more of a challenge if you can sort of do that and s- still tug at a heartstring. And I, the thing that I, is my favorite is if you've made them laugh for two hours and then you can punch them in the gut, they will walk away and remember that experience. 
Is that how you think you now artistically direct the J? I mean, when you're picking your seasons, are you thinking in terms of a mixed bag so that it's not all, and when you do think about a comedy, are you thinking about a comedy that has meaning? Yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting now that I have to be the person to pick the seasons, that has, I've learned a lot. Um, I tend to, I have a pretty broad taste in theater, Mm -hmm. eclectic taste, which Mm -hmm. I think helps. Well, I know you're a voracious reader. Right, right. And so I think it's, uh, you know, there are a lot of things that interest me. Mm -hmm. Uh, For example, I think uh, musical theater, which is almost exclusively an American art form, is critical. And, you know, we will probably do a musical every year because I think it's important and I love them. I've directed many of them. Um, uh, the other thing right now, because we're audience building, is <clears throat> I don't want to alienate um, the audience. And in fact, when I first got hired and I started thinking about what my first season would be, because when I got hired, I produced Kathleen's last season. Right. But that was the season she had programmed. Kathleen Sitzer, who was the former artistic director of the New Jewish Theater. So I thought I did have the responsibility of sort of producing her season, mm-hmm. which was great. But I had, and then I was like, well, I've got to, I have to have an important first season. I've got to make some a big statement. And I was going to open the season with a play called Indecent by Paula Vogel. Right. And a friend of mine had seen it in New York and called me from her seat in the theater and said, you need to come see it. It's brilliant. I agree. I want to direct it. I got on a plane like 10 days later and I, I literally, the usher had to help me out of my seat at the end of the flight. I was so taken with it. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was so beautiful. And mm-hmm. I was like, we need to get the rights. We need to get the rights. And this was like 18 months before I took over. Wow. And we lost, and at that point, a, a large theater in town was sitting on the rights, which is, that's like normal. That's how things happen. Sure. And so I was like, we have to call everyone. And that large theater released the rights. We didn't know it. And another theater in town got it. Although I will say, Stelling Dear Friends, I was very proud of their production. Yeah, Stelly Seitman and Dee Kaplan, who are the artistic director and managing director of Max and Louie Productions. I thought if I couldn't do it, then I'm glad they did it. And they did a really nice job. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So then I was like, well, I'm not, now I'm not doing indecent. Damn it. So I was like, <laughs> I was like, well, what's the, what is the play that is like super important to me? I would not think this way now, by the way. But uh, so I was like, I'm going to open with Angels of America, Millennium Approaches, just the first part, not the whole thing. Right. Originally, I thought we'd do part one one year and part two the next year. Right. And then a large theater in town got the rights because that's how that happens. And so I didn't get to do it. And I was like, damn it. <laughs> now, I don't know how you go from things like kind of as lofty as indecent and as important. <laughs> I think Angels in America is one of the most important plays ever written to a Neil Simon comedy. But in many ways, it sort of is who I am. From your visceral reaction to all of this story, is this what you're most passionate about? What's that? I mean, theater, or is there something else in your life that brings out your passion or brings out your determination? What do you, where do you think you get that from? Because you're, I mean, you doggedly tried to go after these shows and that, that has to be some kind of part of you, not just the theatrical part of you, but there's some other part of you that obviously is driving that. What do you think that is? Um, I think, okay, this is, this is like such a hokey story, but it is completely true. When I was in college, mm-hmm. after the Second World War. Your nickname was the Little Bulldog? No. Sort of. I, I think I was the summer between my sophomore and, no, it was the summer between my junior and senior year. And I had been hired to be the production stage manager at something called Galveston Island Outdoor Summer Musicals. So this is like a 1400 seat theater. It's much like the Muni, but smaller actually, but much like that. It's the big outdoor theater. And it was that we did Hello Dolly with a cast of 120. And then that was in rotating wrap with something, some horrific pageant called Lone Star. Uh, these productions <laughs> involved horses and cowboys and Indians and the Texas Revolution. And, but then 
four nights a week, we did uh, Hello, Dolly, starring Marilyn May as Dolly Lindo. Oh, yeah. She's a friend of mine. Yep. She was, she was amazing. She was amazing in the show. And she so was amazing. You know, we ran, like, we were there. It was like a 14-week run. Was, we were there a long time. And so probably once or twice a week, I would go sit in the house and take notes on the production and have an assistant call the show. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'd been running a while. And so I'd go out to note the show and we get to the second act and we get to the big Hello Dolly number. And there's a, there's a much older couple in front of me that just seemed like kind of salt of the earth people. And they were clearly enjoying the show. Well, the spotlight goes on Marilyn May and she's at the top of the stairs and it's the title number and they completely sing along with her. I like full voice. And I, I started laughing and then I became so overwhelmed by their, how much it meant to them that I just burst into tears. And I was like, that, I, that was when I learned about the power of theater. It's kind of a hokey moment, but it taught me everything I need to know about why it's important to tell stories and why it's important to share stories. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting. You answered my next question, which was going to be, what times in your life have you felt theater has been transformative to you on a personal level? And you just answered that. And there may be more. Well, definitely that Hello, Dolly moment. Mm -hmm. Uh, Definitely indecent, without question. Mm -hmm. Um, When I was uh, a senior in high school, my parents lovingly sent Philip and I on a trip to New York. It was my first trip to New York. Mm-hmm. And in the same way, I saw the original cast of 42nd Street. It's amazing. And I saw the original production of Amadeus. Wow. And those were two moments that, I mean, they're still completely in my head. Mm-hmm. You know, and I've seen, I don't know, thousands of plays maybe at this point. I had that same reaction when I saw Frost Nixon. I saw that production with, it's like one of the greatest things. I And I, I love going to the theater alone because what I would do is I would get a seat like in the balcony, like on the in the first row, and I would curl up with my sweater. And it was almost like curling up with a good book. And I would get so immersed in it. And I would feel such like I was on a journey. And with for some reason, especially with that show, I was so in just enthralled with Michael Sheen and Frank Langella that I just thought, oh, this is just, this is brilliant. And that's the best for me, the best time that I, when I'm at theater, when I can just feel like I'm lost in it. And it's such a story moment and a transformative moment. It truly is. I agree with you. I actually prefer to go to the theater alone. I do too. I, do I, too. I mean, it's not that I don't enjoy going to the theater with people. I do, but the, I have a different experience. With my, I, I saw the the I had seen indecent as it was an evening performance and I'd seen that afternoon I'd seen the matinee in Oslo and Lincoln Center front row about mm-hmm. and it was mesmerizing it was mm-hmm. uh, it didn't move me in the same way indecent did except that I was so taken by the um, the device of the storytelling mm-hmm. uh, sort of, I'm not wild about that term because I think it's overused but it, it was so clean and so clear but it's so theatrical it was great what do you what do you think will happen i mean now that we are in this pandemic and (laughs) i know it's been uh talk about transformative years um and and as you know we because i created that st louis theater pandemic task force that we are now five months in oh you're welcome and you are part of that and it what do you, I mean, (laughs) I don't want to say, what do you think, but I guess things are so different now in how we have to approach the future. And there are so many unanswered questions and there's so much of a question mark that we are finding new ways of telling stories. What are your thoughts on that? Well, um, uh, it, first of all, being in the middle of this makes me very appreciative of our time prior to this and mm-hmm. how unique and special that time in the theater was. Mm-hmm. And the truth is, I don't know that we know what the theater's going to look like ultimately. I think the theater, I'm sure the theater will survive. It's survived for thousands of years. I am 
old enough that I have a little trouble wrapping myself around Zoom theater because it's a different thing that doesn't engage me in the same way as it may engage other people. So that's been a little hard. So I'm like, when can we go back to doing plays in the old, like we did them in the old days? Right, right, um, of course, yeah. <laughs> and I don't know when that's going to be. And I don't no. know what that's going to look like. Uh, and that worries me. Um, on the other hand, I think the theater survives. So it, eventually we're going to do plays. Well, exactly. I mean, I'm not averse to virtual of theatrical productions. I'm not averse to radio theatrical productions. I think it's, it's, it's a, it's an outlet creatively. We're trying to find a new path. I don't, I hate the expression, a new normal, but we're trying to, you know, come up with new ways. I guess it's, it's just that we seem to be in a holding pattern a little bit because some people are doing that. Some people are not doing that because they just don't want to. And I think that's the thing. We're just sort of you know, kind of waiting around to see what's next and how to how to do it. I mean, I do think that there are some virtual uh, theatrical productions I've seen that are creative and it's 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 an interesting medium. It's really like a different medium. It's 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 kind of that cross between it's theatrical, but it's also, you know, something that we're watching, but it's on tape and it's different. So I don't know. Do you? Ha- I guess you have the same reaction that I do, don't you? I do. And, you know, there's a lot of people that are doing work outside and I, I, I don't like to walk from the house to my car. So I'm probably not inclined <laughs> to produce a show. Where, Somebody was like, you should do curbside theater at the J. I was like, absolutely. With or without a pandemic, where do you see yourself in five or 10 years? That's my Jiminy Glick question. Edward, where do you see yourself in five years? I, I think I will still be in St. Louis and I think I'll still be producing theater probably at the J. Uh, I, I can't imagine anything beyond that, but, uh, you know, I made my theatrical home here. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm 57. Unlikely that I'm going to go start. A, I'm going to go off to Seattle. And you don't look at a day over 56. What? Thank you. Mm-hmm. Sweet. Um, it's probably here. I think still doing theater. Uh, I think I, uh, I never imagined myself retiring young at all. I'm sure I'll have worked on in my 70s. Is there something that you still want to do that you haven't done? Like whether it's theatrical or whether it's just career-wise, maybe something totally different that you want to try? Uh, well, I will tell you, you know, I'm doing, uh, to, to kind of fill time and space and stay connected, we're doing this thing called Eddie's Follies. I believe you were on the first guest on episode one. I was, like, I was and thank you. I've returned the favor. Well, I appreciate it. And you were fantastic. I have to say, I really enjoy doing that. I've always loved talking to people and it's very mm-hmm. easy for me. So, and I think as a child, I thought, well, I wanted to be Mayor Griffin, actually. Um, there was a period where I was like, oh, well, what if we just sat around on a couch every afternoon and talk to our friends? I thought that was great. So I do love doing that. I'd like to be Dinah Shore, you know, interview, sing a tune. Exactly. And I have done a fair amount of uh, kind of emceeing and hosting also, which I enjoy. Um, I don't know that I can make a living doing that, but I, I you know, I'm, I am rarely intimidated by crowds. It just is, I've never had that. I mean, if I stop to think about it, I am, but I'm like, it's in some weird way. Uh, like I did the sing-along sound of music at the Fox and there'd be 4,000 people there, but it, it was anonymous to me. Well, that's right. You used to do that as well. Cause you, you had, there was a period there where you were actually hosting and performing and you were on stage. Yeah, that was an interesting story. I got hired by the Fox to, they said, can you find us an MC?" And I said, yeah, of course. So I auditioned people and I started calling people in and they didn't like anybody and they didn't like anybody and they didn't like anybody. And they, I finally said, well, what, are you, what is it you want? Thinking they're going to give me the easiest answer. And they said, well, we want somebody like you. And before I could stop myself, I was like, I'll do it. I was like, what have I just gotten myself into? And so the gig was to introduce the movie and explain the props and uh, warm the audience up, basically. Mm-hmm. So that started out as what should have been 10 minutes of pre-show. I ultimately did a 40-minute set of the material. Were you writing it yourself? Yeah, it was all self-written. And I had a great time doing it. And I did, you know, I did it all over the country. Um, and in fact, the last time I ever did it was at the Hollywood Bowl for like 18,000 people. Now, I will say when I went out on stage at the Hollywood Bowl, 
18,000 people. That, I, I walked on stage, I was like, oh, that's not, I better start talking or I'm going to wet my pants because it was a lot of people. <laughs> do you miss that? Do you miss doing that or that part of your, of like that part of your personality to do that? Would you like to go back to doing that again? Hosting? I, that was where I learned, I knew this, but that was where I learned viscerally what happens when you make somebody laugh. Yeah. That, that you know, I could say something. Or- and not everybody can do that. We, we, we have the same thoughts on that about comedy in general. It's, it's hard to do. First of all, not everybody is funny. I mean, they're just not. I mean, and there are a lot of people who think they're hilarious and they're not. I think, it took me for a long time to understand the thing that every ounce of comedy has to be rooted in uh, truth. That's true. I thought for a long time you could just make a big face and get a laugh, which you can do. But if you can do it truthfully, it actually brings, it takes it to a whole different level. I have, I can totally agree with you on that because I, uh, several years ago, I, I love Gene Wilder and he never gave interviews. But he decided to give an interview to Robert Osborne because Gene Wilder was writing books for a time. And it was he was the 92nd Street Y when I was living there. And I was like, I got to go. And Robert Osborne asked him, he said, you are a classically trained actor, but you were brilliant at comedy. How did you do that? And he said, I played the truth. I played the truth. I never I never played to be funny. I did what, and I played that character as that was that character. And the comedy comes from that. And I thought, and I just sat there and I was like, hallelujah, that's, that's it. It's an incredibly magical thing. It is very hard to articulate how it works. Um, but one of the things I've learned over the years, and I don't have a way to prove it, but I feel strongly about it. If you are an actor that can do comedy, you can absolutely do drama. Absolutely. Just because you can do drama, it does not mean you can do drama. No, it does not. No, now, does I will not. say when I directed that uh, one drama that I've never directed, which was for the Orange Girls, and it was a play by Donald Margulis, and now for the life of me, I can't remember the name of it. Um, it was a two-hander. I know. I know what you're talking about, but I can't think it's of it right now. It's a, it's a great play. I love it. It's about and that author like, and the, yeah. yeah. Uh, plagiarism. It's a great yes. play. And I was like, oh, I, I, this is going to be so hard. It's a drama. And I don't, oh, what am I going to do? It turns out it's the same. It's the same job. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Here's a question. What are you not good at? Well, I'm terrible at algebra, but that goes back to like eighth grade. Because uh, you've done so much theatrically. And I mean, you've had, you've had a lot of different jobs and you've, you've succeeded a lot of them, most of them, all of them. But what are you not good at? Do you know what you're not good at? I'm probably never going to direct a play by Shakespeare. First of all, it doesn't really interest me. Secondly, there are people that do it really well. I'm not going to do a play by Marlowe because I just don't think, I, I think that I would not do it. I think <laughs> sort of strong language-based stuff. I'm like, yeah. Mm, no. <laughs> I wish I, I will, I will tell you what I, what I had more experience or training in is clowning because I think it would enhance my work. And the really? Of people who really studied clowning and are really good at it. Well, it's good with farces and it's good with anything like real, like physical comedy. It's good to have that little part of it. And, you know, I remember being kind of a young, smart alecky director. And I would always say, I will never ask an actor to do what I won't do. Mm -hmm. And now I'm old and jaded and I will absolutely ask an actor to do things I won't. Like, I won't go into the second level of the set because I'm terrified of heights to begin with. So I'm like, you know, you go all, all the way to the highest point. You'll be fine. And I'm like, I would never go. Well, you're from Roswell. So how weird are you on a scale of one to 10? You think you're weird? I don't think I'm weird, but I think there would be easy to find a list of people that would tell you I'm weird. <laughs> I don't think you are. I think you're pretty, I think you're pretty, um, uh, I think you see what you get. Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, I have a, I have tons of interest outside of the theater. I'm a little bit of a news junkie. I love to read. I love to cook. Mm-hmm. I love to go to restaurants. I can attest to your cooking. It's very good. It's wonderful. I have, uh, I think there's, there's a lot of elements that make everything. To wrap it up, 
I have a question because I don't know if there are a lot of people who would be listening probably that would be interested in doing theater as a career. And because of your longevity in the business and your skills and your experience, what advice would you be giving somebody who wants to go into theater as a career today? I think that I think this was true when I was coming up and I think it's so true. You have to go in with your entire heart. And so it, it's, it's even more to me, it's more than just the desire to do theater. It's gotta be the only thing you can do because it's a tough business and it's not a fair business, particularly for actors, I think. Uh, so you gotta go in with your whole heart and you gotta be smart and savvy and you gotta listen and pay attention. And you gotta look, you have to keep your ears open for it when there are opportunities. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I can't tell you the number of Webster kids, all of whom I'm very fond of and very proud of. They graduate, they go to New York, and I can't tell you the number of them that don't ever go to an audition. Or they go to one and they get discouraged. And I'm like, you can't do it that way. How do they develop that, though? Because, see, that's the hard part. You you get into the business, you're really good, you're really talented, and then you do go there. And it's hard. And, I, and see, what I think sometimes is missing is that self-motivation. And see, that has to come from down deep. And the ability to deal with rejection. And a lot of people are not able to do that. And this business is so filled with that. Right, right. And, you know, we, 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 we all have sort of antidotes and, and panaceas about rejection. But the fact is it fucking hurts. It you does. Know, still, even I've been doing this for 30 years. It still hurts. You know, when yes. I don't get a job or somebody doesn't want to hire me. Or- and nobody, they always say, don't take it personally. But we are human. So when we don't get something we really, really want, it's very difficult to say, I don't think, hey, what did I do wrong? Or what's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a personal, it's a personal business, but. I still take it all personally. And frankly, if I get a rejection, I will go set somebody's lawn on fire. I'm not very mature. I can see that. I can see that, that, that I will remember that so that I will always have a fire extinguisher ready to go. (laughs) That's all I have to do is just be ready to go. To wrap it up, tell me one thing about you that no one knows. I was originally left-handed and my first grade teacher made me become right-handed. Why? Uh, She wanted all of her students to write with their right hands. Because? Who I was madly in love with, by the way. So I was like, if you want me to write with my right hand, I'm happy to do it. And was that easy for you to do? Yeah, because I hadn't been writing all that long. And I was... But didn't it feel odd or funny or I can't? Because Philip was right-handed and I was left-handed, so you know, I, it was I, I was I was young enough that it was easy enough. Maybe I was ambidextrous for a minute, but I don't think so. Are you ambidextrous now? I mean, can you do things with your left hand? Well, I can I can barely open a door with my left hand. Wow. No, my right my right side is my my where I have the strength and being. Maybe you are kind of weird. Yeah. Well, yeah. I probably didn't spend enough time in the pod in Roswell. <laughs> I can't thank you enough for being my first guest on my podcast. I am so excited that we had this time to just talk and just have a good conversation. Well, this has been delightful. Uh, You're a fantastic interviewer. Well, thank you. Uh, Thank you for, I don't think people have any idea what you've done for the theater community. And I'm just going to publicly say it's immeasurable and we're, we're all, we owe you a huge debt. Uh, you've really kept us going uh, the last five months. And because um, I've been, there have been some days where I've been very, very discouraged. And, and you know, you're really good at bucking people off. Oh, well, so thank, thank you. And well, thank you. Uh, I, I know when you finally get to open your theater company, it will be a tremendous. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate the support. I really do, especially coming from you, who someone who has been in this business a long time and you understand uh, so much of what goes into it. And, so much of that is just um, keeping your spirits up, keeping positive. The pandemic has really wrecked havoc with a lot of that with all of us. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really, I, I think one thing I can say about what I did with the task force is that as much as it has helped all of you, it has helped me tenfold. And the support and just the camaraderie and the teamwork, because as you know, from working with me as a performer, it was always about, you know, collaboration and team. And it's always about just working really hard and and just being together. And that's the one thing that I'm glad that we're all going through this together. 
So thank you very much. You know, that's, that's such a great point about the business of theater. I think once you learn, you're, we, we can't do it alone, nor mm -hmm. should we do it alone. It's a team sport. Mm -hmm. And uh, thank God. I know. Because if it weren't, I would have, I would have, I'd be working at the UPS. Well, and that's a very good point, especially for young people that are starting in theater. And, and, the, and from my own experience, if it is hard for you to deal with the personal rejection or with the motivation, it is, it is, it is really important to lean on each other. So if you go to New York or if you, or if you just go to Chicago, or if you stay here in St. Louis, find a network, find people that you are, can, you can connect with and people that you can lean on and talk to, because that helps a lot. And also find a support system, find people that love you and support you, even when you are not at the top of your game. It has to come all levels so that even when you are not feeling your best and you are feeling personally rejected, that you have people that you can talk to about that so that you don't give up because that is the number one thing about theater. There are a lot of people that jump ship and you shouldn't, you should just stay with it, especially if you love it. And like you said, it's a heart thing. It's a passion thing. If you can find the support system and a place with a great bowl of chicken soup, then you're going to be fine. That's, that's. Thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. And uh, I will be talking to you, I'm sure, somewhere along the lines in theater. Be well. Thank you so much. You too, dear. Have a good night. Well, that's our show. Thank you for joining me. Be well, be safe, and be good to each other. I'm Sharon Hunter. Until next time on Moonstone Connections.